Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Избушка, избушка! Встань к лесу задом, ко мне передом. Чего надо? Иван явился, неждан, незван, повернул избушку, разбудил старушку. Привет, товарищ Барт. Don't spit on ya, Jenna. What did I just say? We really shouldn't try. I don't know. I have no idea. Yana Gavaru Paruski. That's all I know to say. Welcome to another episode of Cinema 60, where today we are venturing into a country that I very much enjoy cinematically, which is Soviet Russia. I decided let's just go full Jenna for this episode and talk about a director who does only the most artistic and bizarre and baffling and beautiful fairy tales. And that is the films of Alexander Rowe. He was born to an Irish father and a Greek Romani mother. And then his father left them in Russia. And he went on to become one of the more celebrated filmmakers of his day, which is sort of interesting. He got his start old Alexander, in Ajitprop Theater, which was based off of a Soviet ministry. The name stands for Propaganda for Agitators, <laughs> aka like towards non-communists. But it turned into this like highly politicized theater, which then ended up, you, you see it in, in Europe and the US, this type of theater. And he was part of a pretty large one that was called the Blue Blouse Troupe, which was, they were called that because they were wearing these sort of blue worker shirts as they did these proto-improv avant-garde theater shows that did, like, dramatically staging the news or doing, like, satirical songs or, like, even acrobatics. <laughs> it was a sort of weird, uh, you know, again, like, you see this, especially in the 60s, you see a ton of a revival of this, funny enough. But this was like, we're talking about back in the day. This would be like the 1920s that he was a part of that. And from there, he ended up at Mezrab Palm Film, which was a Russian-German left-wing Hollywood competitor, which of course then got destroyed once all the world wars came around. But he fell into this sort of fairy tale and fantasy film through of this that he then ended up going back to Russia and Gorky and all these other film studios and continuing that for the rest of his career. I was a little nervous about this episode when you told me that we were going to watch a whole bunch of Russian fairy tales by this one guy. I'd seen some clips of some of these films before and uh, it's pretty bizarre stuff. I actually realized as I was starting to watch these films that I'd seen one of his movies before, Father Frost as a uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode, which seemed ter like a terrible movie because it was dubbed and edited so you couldn't really follow the plot, as I recall. But watching it in the original, it was actually pretty good. And, and most of these movies ended up entertaining me a lot. They're definitely strange, but it's like anime or something. It seems so odd when you first jump in and it's kind of exciting because it's so foreign and bizarre. But then once you start to recognize the tropes 
it's fun to sort of pick them out in each of these films. So, yeah, even as the sort of kitty vibes of these things started to wear on me, I still enjoyed picking out things that were referencing back to other films or just common Russian fairy tale tropes that Roe uses a lot in all of these films. So this would not have been my choice for an episode, but it definitely was an interesting trip. I always feel like fairy tales kind of get a bad rap. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, I mean, Roe, was, he was a strong proponent, obviously, of fairy tales. He thought that they were a great teaching tool for both children and adults, because he was one of the first filmmakers in Soviet Russia that was making fairy tales and things for children that was not just puppets or cartoons, so doing live-action fairy tales. Part of what always interests me about Soviet filmmaking is what's happening sort of behind the scenes of what you're seeing. And so there's always this sort of strong arm of government being mixed with whatever the filmmaker's vision is. And trying to find more information about Roe, the only information I found, I really was like, the, considering he's a sort of celebrated Russian filmmaker, basically the information that I just gave you is kind of what I could find without speaking Russian. It was a bit rough to find more information about him, but from what I know about other Russian filmmakers, it wouldn't surprise me, though I can't confirm any of this, so don't quote me on your college paper, is that it's this weird mix of like, he falls into fairy tales and fantasy films because it's at least partially a way to connect that message of communism to the masses. And the government always has money to give for doing stuff like that. And it's a great recruiting tool, especially, uh, you know, when he started back in the early 30s, or, or I guess by the late 30s, he was making movies. One of his first movies was this movie by Pike from 1938, which was a mix of four different Russian fairy tales. And these, of course, are always great recruiting tools because now you're mixing in something that people already know and love, and then you're showing them just how easily your way of thinking works within it, or better yet, that your way of thinking was always a part of it. And fairy tales are perfect. They're like tailor-made for shoving in whatever your agenda is because they're basically how-to manuals of morality. But on the other side of that is the fact that by retelling these fairy tales and keeping especially the more surreal aspects of them or the, and the fantastical aspects of them, you're actually preserving a lot of the culture that Soviet Russia was setting out to streamline. <laughs> so in a weird way, he ends up kind of preserving Ukrainian culture and preserving like Crimean culture. And I, I'm sure that there's more of that. And I don't know exactly what parts of the USSR all of these fairy tales are from or culturally what they tie back to. But I at least could identify Ukrainian and Crimean. So it's interesting for me to watch these and sort of think about, is there something else that he's sort of trying to tell, but he's just like has a spin of something like I can't tell. I don't know what his intentions are, basically, but it is fun to sort of see these updated versions of classic tales that he doesn't. Did you find that these were like overtly propagandistic? I mean, it's clearly there, but it didn't like overtake any of the stories for me. No, it didn't feel like you were getting a perverted version of the story just so that it can impart this communist message. I actually, that was the what interested me most about these things. You know, when I started to notice 
the kings were always the bad guys and the heroes were always these commoners. You know, it could have just been a matter of which fairy tales Rowe selected to make films out of, you know, ones that would support this agenda. But uh, I went back to some of the original fairy tales and it's all right there in the originals. So I think part of his goal here must have been to sort of connect the Soviet people to their heritage and say, look, these ideas of regular people you know, succeeding and being the hero is, uh, you know, it's, it's been with us forever. All of these old tales that we all told each other for centuries, they're all about how kings are corrupt and useless and a life without kings is way better. Like it's always been part of the Russian spirit. So uh, that's why communism works for us. <laughs> I have one Google translated quote from him that I could find where he says, quote, the folktale is strong with its naive belief in the miraculous and the truthfulness of human relationships. Good always triumphs over evil, light and darkness, which, you know, again, it's Google translated. So I'm sure we're losing a ton of <laughs> information there. But I do think that he from what I can tell, he was really interested in folktales and to go back to these like lesson immorality kind of things more than it was about just being propaganda which is interesting too because again like he has these two you know foreign quote right parents but you know Russia's where he was born and raised and clearly was trying to either find some way to connect with or or this is what he did connect with maybe was the fairy tales and and this is how he defined uh himself in this country he was born in the one other thing that's kind of interesting is that he's also known for being an optimistic filmmaker like these are fairy tales but they're not like evil fairy tales <laughs> people do die but it's very very cartoony and some of the stuff i found to be really grim was not acknowledged <laughs> he's really much more about really just making like upbeat fun fairy tales that have like music and you know fun characters and he had a sort of stable of actors who he continued to use throughout and as we go through these movies they do kind of run together in a way because of the fact that he's using the same cast of characters or the same tropes over and over again but you know that's what fairy tales are (laughs) so it is what it is are you a fan of fairy tales in general or are you too cool for them i'm not necessarily much of a fan what do you hate magic (laughs) i (laughs) i like magic i think there's a certain element of you know things just happen in fairy tales that i have trouble connecting to that uh, you know i'm more of a cause and effect sort of person and that need doesn't always get satisfied in fairy tales for me you know that's and then this magical thing happened and everybody was saved i love the characters fairy tale characters and and i i like being in surreal worlds. But yeah, if, if I have to knock fairy tales at all, it's that they, narratively, they don't always make a whole lot of sense, <laughs> except in a symbolic way. And that's always fun to dig into a fairy tale and figure out what it's really trying to say. I always liked fairy tales for the most part, but I think the stuff that I like about fairy tales is really superficially the fantasy stuff. Like I was never so interested in the lessons. I was interested in the idea of talking animals. <laughs> yeah. We're going to get plenty of those in these films. Yeah. Like, I love the magic part of it. And I don't really care typically about the humans in fairy tales. I was a weird kid. 
up until the age of 10, I would not watch anything that had humans in it. It had to have talking animals if a human was in it. And I missed out on whatever everyone else was watching, like Saved by the Bell or whatever the fuck. Like, <laughs> No, and the heroes in these fairy tales are always just audience stand-ins. You're supposed to be placing yourself in the stories. So the human characters, at least the non-twisted and evil ones, are usually pretty boring even when you're not a, a talking animal-obsessed kid? I don't know. I have, like, very fond memories for fantasy in general. Like, fantasy and sci-fi were what I grew up with and what I always am interested in returning to. And yet, at the same time, I sort of... I'm with you because I get disappointed watching a lot of this stuff now and expecting something more and not really getting it. I guess, so let's get into these movies. The one... Note of sadness that I can only say that is to talk about these films through a podcast. You don't get to see just how visually delightful these movies are. So please, if you go to at least bare minimum cinema-6060.com, we have some screenshots for you. Take a look at those. Otherwise, just like Google the man and like <laughs> check it out as we go through these because these movies are so great looking. Yeah, uh, jumping in with this first one, The Magic Weaver. Or Maria the Magic Weaver, or, you know, a lot of these movies go by various titles based on what the name of the original tale was and how they translate the Russian title. But this first one, I, I really felt like I had jumped into a completely different world with this thing. I was not prepared for how strange this movie was. Compared to the films that came later, this one came out in 1960 and each movie that he made after this had a bigger budget, and you can tell he's got more of a sense of what of this sort of unified vision he has as these movies progress. But just this first one really knocked me out with the story of this soldier, this drummer soldier, is returning home from war, and he stumbles on these talking bear cubs who ask him, which he's not surprised by. He's living in a world where animals talk. You see these live, well-trained bear cubs that somebody has dubbed a voiceover. So, you know, it's not like Babe where you see their lips moving to what they're saying. But it's clear that the, these are talking bears. And they and they say, oh, our mother has been caught in a trap. Uh, help her. You've got to help her. So the drummer goes and rescues Mama Bear. And they tell him that there's uh, all this evil stuff in the forest. That this trap was laid by, by evil spirits. And the drummer, who's a, a brave soldier, decides, well, I've got to look into this. We don't want any other innocent forest creatures being harmed. So he wanders into the forest and stumbles on Vanya, this young boy who is searching for his mother, who's been kidnapped by the water spirit because she's this amazing weaver, Maria, the magic weaver, and he just wants her to weave for him. And Vanya is wandering through the forest looking for his mother, and the soldier says, oh, I'll help you, little boy. And so they seek out the water spirit, and he appears in, in giant form, you know, he can change his size at will. And he takes them down to his underwater kingdom where they're greeted by the prime minister, Croak. Both the water spirit and Croak are two of Rose's regular 
cast. They're in every single one of these movies. Anatoly Kubatsky is the water spirit, and Georgi Miliar is croak. You know, they're always in this they're really crazy makeup that's not realistic. So croak is supposed to be frog-ish. He's supposed to be a frog, but he doesn't look like a frog. He's just green and bald. That's the first part of trying to orient yourself in this bizarre Russian fairy tale world is seeing how these different underwater creatures are represented in human form with very clear makeup. Like it's not trying to fool you. This is theater. This isn't a realistic-ish fairy tale. But anyway, so the soldier and Vanya have this adventure in the water spirits kingdom and eventually they rescue Vanya's mother. I mean, not to spoil anything, but every one of these movies has a happy ending, which seemed to be the case in the actual fairy tales that I read preparing myself for this episode. But as you were saying, they don't go nearly as dark as the original fairy tales seem to. There's one, I read the original story for Father Frost. So when we get to that, I'll tell you how dark these things really can end sometimes. But this was great. I constantly, my, my mouth was gaping at how strange this thing was with underwater pirates doing song and dance numbers and miniature mermaid ballerinas dancing in the water spirits box and so much good stuff in here just packed in didn't the water remind you of the mermaid that we watched for shaw brothers it absolutely did that was the first thing i thought of the sea creatures in human form because there are a bunch of them there's like a you know this clam guy who's some kind of minister in the in the water spirits kingdom and it would be fun to do a comparison between Chinese fairy tale movies and uh, and Russian fairy tale movies. I don't even know if there's much of a crossover other than just like, but design wise, it really it was like heavily looked like the same film. And I, I do wonder if there was, you know, because it also just looks like theater. So it's like hard yeah. to say that it was this, but this movie, I was so excited <laughs> going in, starting with this too, because I was like, great. Anything that looks like the same art direction as an episode of Star Trek, I'm like sold. Make it like a Russian fairy tale. It's even better. (laughs) Besides like there's like magical instruments and there's all these ridiculous over the top costumes, as you mentioned, but the actual trained bears that they use in this, (laughs) which I, I'm so mixed on because, you know, I don't trust any movie before the nineties and even then with animals in film because they're always just like torturing these poor things to get that one shot they need. (laughs) But it was charming. (laughs) The bear cubs come back quite a bit too. They can't be the same trained bear cubs in this and in Barbara 10 years later. No, which just lets you know how many bear cubs they were likely torturing. But I also love the embroidery in this. Everything visually about this was just so much fun. Like the way that they sort of show that you're underwater without really doing much more than they they walk through these scenes where like there's coral instead of trees and stuff like that. And it's just, it looks so good. Yeah, before you enter the castle, you've got these sort of animated waves on the screen that remind you, oh, you're underwater. But once you get inside the castle, it's only the fact that a lot of the costumes are based on sea creatures that you're reminded that, oh, yeah, this is an underwater kingdom, isn't it? And the way that they sort of show people's costumes based on sea creatures, it's like overt, but it's also they still 
make it look as if they are dressed in a certain way, except for like the frogman is terrifying, but <laughs> they look just like somebody who is dressed so over the top they look like a fish more than it is like someone in, with a fish face or something like that. And then the whole palace is made of shells and stuff. Like, I love that stuff. Love it. And then, I don't know, even like the little stuff too, where like there's a scene where Nushka, the little girl. The daughter of the water spirit. Yes. She realizes something's not right, but then she gets told by the frog guy that, oh, they're evil. Like, don't worry about it. It's not, it's not us. It's them, you know? And so she ends up trying to steal away Maria because she thinks she's saving her. She doesn't realize that this is actually her son who's desperate and looking for her and the soldier who's helping him. Like, she sees them through this, like, weird funhouse mirror that makes them look like monsters. And she's a little girl, so she gets scared. And she, like, splits Maria into six different Marias. It's great. It's just great. <laughs> it would be fun to trace back all of these different elements to their original tales. Because in my research, I mean, I couldn't find many of the exact tales that these movies were based on. But it seems to me that every one of these is sort of jamming together three or four different stories into one. So it does a good job of putting all of these different fairy tale elements, like telling these separate little fairy tale stories within this larger fairy tale context. So it'd be fun to have a scholar tear these apart for us and see where everything came from. I wish we could have done more of that ourselves, but just don't have the resources, don't, don't have the English language resources to do it. I also really liked what a sweetie the soldier is. Yeah. All the animals in the forest love him. The birds are always landing on his shoulder and talking to him. And, you know, he's so sweet with Vanya, this little boy. Like, he's constantly comforting him because he's so worried about his mother. And, and he's so brave. He goes into battle with just a drum. That drum is sort of a weapon in the undersea kingdom because the water spirit doesn't like noise. So the soldier's always threatening to bang his drum and the water spirit says, no, 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 don't do that. And all of this is sort of revolving around the water spirit getting this drum from the soldier. He may be my favorite hero of any of these movies. And he doesn't come back. I think that actor is just in this one and, and not in any of the others. Yeah. He's the only example of a soldier as opposed to like a farmer or no, they're all farmers, everyone else, right? Yeah, I didn't think about it, but you might be right. Which, yeah, it seems like a Soviet choice if it wasn't the original choice. But he's an interesting character. And I guess also the fact that he's a soldier in a weird way gives him a little bit more depth because you don't know where he's coming from or where he's going. And he talks about how, like, if he bangs his drum, like, the entire army will always come running for him, which is kind of interesting, too. It's like the power of... Uh group of one <laughs> <laughs> so immediately after this movie there's kind of a detour we watched this ballet of cinderella that roe did with the bolshoi ballet are we going to talk about this one at all not 
Which isn't to say I didn't like it. I actually really did like it. I think in a lot of ways, this is one of the better, especially for 1960, which it really impressed me because I feel like we're still struggling with how to do this correctly, but it really does a good job of recording a straight up ballet, clearly on a stage. And they do a really good mix of having a camera that shows you the whole stage while still following characters around and also staging close-ups when necessary. And it's a ballet, so there's no dialogue. You know, it's, and it's Cinderella. You all know the plot. I don't like the music very much. The Prokofiev didn't do much of anything for me. The dancing was pretty amazing, but I was having trouble getting invested just because the music was kind of backgroundy. The music didn't register for me at all. The dancing also, quite frankly, I just, ballet, I don't really get, but I enjoyed the theater sets in this and the costumes. It's all stuff that he so clearly uses and reuses in his films. To me, it kind of captures what makes live theater so much fun in a lot of ways, which again is just so hard to do on film. But it captures a certain energy, and, and I love... There's some really, really cool set pieces. There's also some racism in this. <laughs> uh, pretty overtly yellow and brown face racism, but there's some really excellent sets. <laughs> well, every nation is represented at the ball that Cinderella goes to, so that's why they think they have an excuse for racial stereotypes. But it gives you a variety of ethnic dances, which is fun. Yeah, I mean, it's like Russian-interpreted ethnic... But yeah, it's a good mix of stage and then, you know, like when the clock strikes 12, we get this close up of dozens of 12s overlaid <laughs> on the frame and dancing around Cinderella's head. So there's like there's enough added cinematic beats that it just keeps you awake <laughs> and helps and like improves whatever the scene is just to watch it on a screen without really like taking away from what they actually had on stage. So I liked it. I thought Cinderella was nice. If you like ballet, especially, it's pretty cool. I like some ballet. I had trouble staying focused on this. My biggest problem was that the Cinderella story doesn't really fit into what Rao is doing at all. I mean, not only is it sort of a Western fairy tale that we're all familiar with, but here's this servant girl who, in the end, becomes a princess, which goes against everything in all of these other fairy tale films. Like, in the end, the hero and heroine turn their back on royalty and money and power and just sort of go off and be in love in the woods. And the Cinderella story is such a capitalist fantasy. It's a little shocking to see this in a 1960 Russian film, but I guess they just assume that it's Cinderella. Nobody's going to think about it. It's just a story that everybody knows and loves. Well, you know, she's being rescued from these sort of stuck up, also rich, another rich family. So I feel like there's aspects. If you think about her sort of going from being abused to then being able to have power over those who have abused her, I think it sort of fits, but... Well, and it also fits the formula for all of these movies pretty much is that these bad people who are really desirous of power and wealth and fancy things, they never get what they're after. It's the poor girl who's very humble and isn't interested in, in all of these fancy things at all who ends up getting rewarded with all these treasures, with all these good things. So I guess the morality of this story fits in with the rest of these fairy tales, but just a little too capitalist for my taste. <laughs> Well, you're going to love the next movie in that case, which is Evenings on a Farm Near Dekanki. Mm. 
1961, which was delightful, based on a Gogol short story, which is clearly based on a whole bunch of fairy tales. There's two characters in this that I've recognized as being Russian fairy tale characters, but I couldn't tell you much more than their names. There's Oksana and Chub are both involved in this. I think it's the witch and Chub is the devil. <laughs> no, Chub is just a regular farmer. Oh, yeah, the devil. Yeah, he has a separate credit. I don't know. So I know that that's this thing. Sorry, I'm not Russian or Ukrainian, actually, which is what this is a Ukrainian fairy tale. This starts off with the devil stealing the moon, and it only gets better from there. It is about a small Ukrainian village just days before Christmas, right? Like it's sort of a Christmas tale, but without any religion in it, which I also loved. <laughs> and this young blacksmith, Vakula, is in love with this Oksana, who is a beauty in the village. She is uh, she's a little bit of a jerk to him. She says, like, he's very clearly head over heels for her, and she says that she sort of taunts him and says, I'll only marry you if you bring me the slippers of Catherine the Great. <laughs> The same slippers that she wears. And so he ends up, you know, after wandering and, you know, and having an angsty moment in the snow and the woods, he teams up with the devil to bring him to Catherine the Great to St. Petersburg and get the shoes, which he manages to sort of charm out of her. And then on top of this plot, there's like everyone else in the village. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of random things happening, like the local sorceress and like the opening credits of this are so wonderful because it's all animated and they sort of go through each character and they introduce who every character is and they give them a little animation like wink on top of telling you who the actor is it's like really great opening credits that's kind of common to all of these films though i mean it's not the same type of animation but they all have these sort of extended opening credits where you have drawn versions of all the characters and the and the characters names but this one they have like the narrator being like Okay, this is Vakula, who's the local yeah. blacksmith. Like, they go through and they like, tell you exactly who everyone is. And either way, I don't remember who any of them are. <laughs> yeah, by the time you get into the movie, because they're drawn versions especially, it's like, oh, was that that guy? The who's who? But, you know, it's a fairy tale, so you figure it out pretty quickly. And a good chunk of this movie is just the devil running around the village causing a lot of trouble. You know, the snow is really deep and these drunken friends trying to get from one house to the bar in the middle of a snowstorm and the devil is starting a windstorm so they can't get where they're going. The most memorable stuff in this movie is just the devil causing trouble. You made it sound as if Facula is friends with the devil, but he tricks the devil into flying him to St. Petersburg. Like, I forget what the trick is, but what I especially love is all of the flying in this. The witch and the devil just sort of fly around in the sky they sort of get into this crouch position and fly through the air. Evacula is on his back, and a lot of that stuff is really fun to watch. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a lot of really good just, like, trick cinematography, a lot of having the film play backwards in order to show the magic. <laughs> he overdoes that. There's too much of that. In these. There's way too much of it, but it's still pretty funny. There's also these, like, fake dolly zooms that maybe they're actual. I, I, like, I, I don't know. I can't tell because they're really subtle and they don't happen too often, but where it's like a character who's walking ahead into the room and you see the room kind of pushing back as they're walking forward. 
And it felt more like somebody was handheld walking backwards with them than it felt like they were on a dolly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but maybe they maybe they are. I don't know. But it, like there was at least like a lot more like cinematic moments in this, especially with the stuff the devil gets up to, like stealing the moon and losing it and people flying through the sky and stuff like that. So it was really like a big step up from Maria the Wonderful Weaver as far as filmmaking goes. But also very much the same. I mean, like, really the best part about this is the colors and the costumes. And, you know, I love all the painted doorways and the walls and this sort of all of these local cultural Ukrainian touches to things are just like just so fun to see. And then even when they go to the Tsarina, her outfits are kind of amazing. Like, she looks great, actually. Talk about one of the other few films where the rich people aren't totally the worst. Because it gets very much like overt, like everyone who's rich is like a total buffoon as we move on. And in this one, there's a little bit of reverence, even though she comes off as a snob and a bit of a fool, but her outfit's amazing. And the slippers are definitely worth marrying a guy with that kind of crummy haircut. Yeah, I mean, Fakula charms her by saying, those are beautiful slippers you're wearing. I wish my wife could have slippers like that. And Catherine is sort of shocked and amused, like, oh, gosh, a commoner having shoes like these? How could that ever be? The ridiculousness of that concept is what inspires her to give her shoes to Vakula. She's definitely an evil Tsarina, but she's not totally immune to the plight of the commoner, I guess. Or maybe she is, and it's just a whim. I like this one because you just get so much about village life in this little Ukrainian village. And, you know, you see them sledding in the snow and just... You know, all the villagers gathered. There's a lot of just local color in it that you don't get from any of the other movies. I think the story in this one is kind of weak. And there are long bits that don't amuse me much. Like all the men in town are going to the witch's house because she does men in town favors <laughs> of one sort or another. It's very not specific about that. But clearly they're ashamed to be at the witch's house and they each get hidden in a different coal sack as the next one comes in and so there are bags of people around her hut and that's you know meant to be extremely amusing especially when vacula comes and grabs all these sacks and throws them over his back and then you know various crazy things happen with the people inside them but this movie is more of just sort of a collection of details and the story itself is not very strong and also oksana is such a jerk to vacula that you don't particularly want vacula to win her well, she she teases him so much that everyone thinks he went off to kill himself. So when he does come back with the shoes, everyone, all the girls start screaming because <laughs> they think he's dead. And then, you know, he hands these shoes to her and she sort of realizes it was never about the shoes. Like now, after she thought he killed himself, she suddenly, uh, you know, fell in love with him. So she sort of redeems herself in that way. She's not so much that it's, you know, she's charmed by the materialism. It's the sacrifice that he made and yada yada. But there's a lot of weird beat to this. There's also that like sorcerer character. He's like making the Pyrrhiki and he's like rolling them in sauce and then eating them and they like fly up into his mouth. That was nauseating. I couldn't wait for that scene <laughs> to be done. <laughs> I mean, I was. it was just baffling. I just wasn't too sure how everything fit together, but I loved it. Well, he learns how to trick the devil into helping him from that sorcerer, I think. It's the only reason we have to visit that gross guy and watch these dumplings shoot into his mouth. 
they also use this really lovely like train set whenever they do these wide shots of the village and i just that, i love stuff like that it just it it is just so much better or like you know painted backgrounds and things are just so much more fun especially when you're doing a fantasy it's like it's a fairy tale Why, like who cares <laughs> yeah just go for it but yeah i don't know this one was really a lot of fun and also great lighting a lot of great use of uh color gels it's fun to look at but i'm with you the plot's a bit weak well the one that he did after this in 1963 the kingdom of crooked mirrors is my favorite because it has a pretty tight plot for a fairy tale. It's actually based on a novel, which is, you know, I'm sure based in Russian fairy tales, but that may be why it holds together narratively better than any of these other movies. It's based on a novel by Vitaly Gubarev. This is a story of this little girl named Olya who gets into trouble a lot, is staying out late at movies when she shouldn't be and losing the key to her front door and getting into her grandmother's jams and and just not being a very responsible little girl. Her grandmother leaves her on her own in the apartment and she looks into the mirror and meets her opposite. Yalo, Olya backwards. All, everyone in this movie has uh, backwards names, so pronouncing them is, is even worse than you know a person like me trying to say regular Russian names. <laughs> yeah, so she has a conversation with Yalo and says, oh, I wish I could be better. And Yalo invites her to her side of the mirror where everything is the opposite. So Olya goes through the mirror and she's in this mirror kingdom where everybody is not what they appear to be. They go through life looking into these distorted mirrors. They don't have any regular mirrors in this kingdom. They have only distorted mirrors so they can see themselves as they want to be seen. So everyone is all grandiose, thinking so highly of themselves. And Olya and Yalo, who are played by two real-life twins, are running around this kingdom, causing a little bit of trouble, but mostly just having fun. They manage to accidentally stick it to the aristocracy in this kingdom and disrupt an aristocratic parade. I don't think they're even trying to do that, but it's this movie is definitely like royalty is stupid and free the proletariat from the oppression of their exploiters. The storyline here feels the most communist because they come across this boy who works in the factory that makes the mirrors. Droog. His name is Friend backwards, but... Gord. Because his name is Friend. They know he's a friend, and they want to help Droog. He's going to be executed because he refuses to make distorted mirrors anymore. He wants people to see the truth about themselves. So the rest of the movie is the girls trying to free Gord from his prison where he's about to be executed, and that means stealing the key from behind the throne of the king. So they pose as his pages to do that, but then they lose the key. And it's a whole adventure, but it's got kind of a cause and effect story to it, which absorbs me a bit more than the usual. Just like, and then this happened, fairy tale type story. And there's a whole cabal of advisors. These kings have these evil advisors who all just use him as a puppet. Uh, his name is Parrot Backwards because he's, he's just a parrot. 
you know, not only are they trying to manipulate the king and take over you know, power themselves, but they're all sort of fighting amongst each other. So there's a, you know, his main advisor, who's a, you know, some kind of bird of prey backwards, and his daughter, who's a snake, and a toad. They're all sort of working against each other, too, hatching plots to get the other out of the way. Even the daughter is trying to do her father in because she thinks he's trying to do her in. And and so there's a lot of, you know, sort of like lightly political intrigue in this one that's kind of interesting. And it's my favorite of all of these. I thought it was a ton of fun. Probably because, you know, this book, this Gubarev wrote is from the 50s. So it is a contemporary fairy tale. And it's so clearly a rework of Alice in Wonderland, but with a clear Russian slant and its own innovations. I wouldn't call it a ripoff. I think it's its own thing. And it's I'm with you. It's, I thought it was great. I thought this was easily one top top two uh, Alexander Rowe <laughs> movies. Could be the first. Can't tell, you know, it's between the two of them. We'll, we'll talk about it. To me, this was like a Miyazaki movie meets Alice in Wonderland, you know, Mm -hmm. like it was really just excellent. You know, you have this female protagonist saving the boy, you know, you have weird electronic music (laughs) (laughs) and everyone getting turned into animals. Plus, I love like they're always chasing after their vicious cat, who's of course, there's two of them because he jumps into the mirror first. There's also like there's a lot more things that are actually menacing in this than there is in the other movies. Like there's that scene where one of the two main girls jumps out of a tower and falls like a million feet into the water. (laughs) Yeah. And it's assumed that she's dead until we find out that she survives. You're like, Oh my God. You know, it was one of those, like you look away for a second. I turn back and suddenly this little girl is being thrown out of a window. I was like, what's (laughs) happening? I had to rewind it. I feel a little guilty liking this one the best because it has sort of the more traditional structure of a regular movie. Like you've got these chase scenes with horse and carriages and escape from prison scenes. And it all boils down to more of a traditional sort of adventure story rather than just a lot of weird things happening. It doesn't have that folktale feel to it that the rest of these do i mean it's got similar types of characters like you've got the frog slash toad guy whose makeup is even grosser in this one because he's got warts all over him besides being painted green and you know you've got talking animals you've got a lot of the elements from the other fairy tale movies but they all just sort of fit together in in more of a logical way so maybe not exactly the fairy tale experience that everybody wants I mean, it was the fairy tale experience that I wanted. This actually makes a lot more sense than even Alice in Wonderland does. Yeah, it does. And it's really only the mirror world element, the looking glass thing that really is, and the evil monarch on the other side thing. And the little girl wandering in a fantasy world and, you know, the surrealism, the backward stuff, the... And also all of the animal characters, even in her normal life, like, you know, she has this problem with a parrot (laughs) (laughs) who only appears with like red lights because he's kind of evil. And then he also appears in the mirror world as also evil. And Well, he's the opposite. He ends up being kind of the good guy. The king is just a puppet. So the girls are able to sway him to their side because he's so malleable. 
Yeah, the king's like an utter buffoon. Like that kind of stuff is what annoys me, honestly. That's the, and, the, and it comes up again and again, and especially the rest of these. And it's not because I'm thinking poor king. It's just grating to watch like somebody act just like a total dope. To me, that's not humor. That's just annoying. Yeah, that is the thing that gets wearying the most quickly in these movies is watching the king of whatever magical kingdom they're in and, and the court going through these sort of comic routines where the king is a total idiot and the court is, they're all even stupider than he is. I guess the kiddies love it, but for an adult, it does get a bit wearying. Yeah, see, that's the thing, though, is that in a way, I actually appreciate the fact that these are movies that are being made for children and that there is beats of things that is annoying as an adult that probably isn't for a kid. And I like that because I get so annoyed, especially now, where you get all of these weird kids movies that are like, ha-ha, wink and nudge to the parents, and they don't have like a real plot. It's just like, oh, we all know you have to sit through it, so let's, uh, you know, like, here's some sleazy uh, humor and that's for you mom and dad and then here kid look it's a smiley face get over it like there's nothing there's no talking down to children in this which I think is like another like thing that reminds me maybe of Miyazaki is that like it really is talking to kids without talking down to kids you know it's smart enough and it's clever enough that I appreciate that in all of these really I, I don't think there's ever a time where it feels like it's sarcastic I mean I also don't think that adults watching these movies with their kids probably had a bad time watching them either. I mean, there's plenty for an adult to enjoy in them, even though there's nothing that's specifically directed at them. I mean, it could just be the foreignness of this whole aesthetic had me captivated, but I have to believe that adults in the audience are saying, oh, I remember that story. They obviously have a much better sense of where all of these little bits and pieces are coming from, from traditional folktales, I'll bet that would be really entertaining for an adult member of the audience to be looking for. Well, for this one, too, I think just this idea of doublespeak is already pretty Soviet. And so like you have this as basically a child friendly version of the same concept with mirrors. And I think that even the backwards names is clever enough. It's definitely not subversive, but it is the type of thing that you see in subversive cinema, and I think even just having that nod of acknowledgement, as G-rated as it is, is kind of interesting. The next movie is Jack Frost, which is Morosko is what it's called, which is a, a traditional Russian fairy tale. And this was your mystery science theater, which I love mystery science theater, and I've never seen this uh, episode. So I was kind of like, man, I can't believe it, and ended up watching some highlight clips from the mystery science theater after I watched the movie. <laughs> but, it, you know, it, I like this movie. This was a really good movie. And it's funny to sort of see how people are dismissing it even on letterbox as being like when people which is you know anecdotal but like seeing people reviewing this on letterbox that are like i watched the mystery science theater like what a batshit time like doesn't make any sense or like people calling this finnish which i don't understand maybe there was some sort of money from finland or maybe that's what the dub 
or something. I don't know because there's a lot of people referencing that, but like looking at how this was made as Scorky Film Studios and that's in Moscow. So I don't really know what that's about. There's nothing Finnish about this, at least that I can tell. It may have been set in the foreign land of Finland. That actually sounds sort of familiar, you know, in the English dub version of this. Maybe. It sounds like a dub. It sounds like some sort of like fake dub translation bullshit. (laughs) In a previous episode, you were talking about how you don't like how people get mad at Mystery Science Theater 3000 for not respecting movies, that if you love movies, you can't like Mystery Science Theater 3000. And obviously, it's all about loving these old bad movies. But what they did to this movie is turning... An actually really fun, clever, well-made, beautiful-looking fairy tale film into a seemingly terrible, cheap foreign movie. That's the impression you get from watching the Mystery Science Theater version of this film, but that's not at all what this film is. It doesn't deserve the Mystery Science Theater 3000 treatment, except in a badly edited and dubbed version, I guess. The dubbing is everything, though, man. Like, dub movies... Like, never watch a dub movie, ever, especially the older ones. Like, I, I feel like it's only in, like, the late 90s to early 2000s that Americans specifically started to take dubbing movies seriously. And there's so many bad dubbed film. I mean, think about even, like, anime. There's so much awfully dubbed anime. My Neighbor Totoro, I have a hard time watching in English, even though I love that movie and it, like, can make me cry. In Japanese, it's amazing. And, and, and like the attention paid to the voice work in Japanese is just so clearly overt. And then when you go to the American one, it's like, hey, we're there. <laughs> and then so like I can understand making fun of these films when they're dubbed. But I'm with you that they did this one dirty because it's kind of great. Basically, the plot is not what you'd think for something that gets called Father Frost or Jack Frost in English. But um, it is a young girl named Nastya who, you know, is living with an evil stepmother who has her own evil daughter. And Nastya is, of course, beautiful and perfect. And, you know, the evil stepmother says, you better knit these socks before the sun comes up or before the rooster crows specifically. And so, like, there's this great opening scene with Nastya trying to, like, knit these socks as soon as possible. And then she sees the rooster waking up and, and coming out. And she says, oh, please, Mr. Sun, rosy-fingered Don, I need to finish knitting or I'll be punished. And, you know, so then the sun actually goes back down and the rooster goes, oh, okay, and waits until she finally gets the last stitch in. And then the rooster crows and the stepmother comes out and, like, slaps her and takes the socks and says, I don't know, you did it, but you did it. So we have her initially. And then there is Yvonne. He's like the strapping young lad who's all the girls in the village love him, but he's kind of full of himself and totally dismissive. And he gets accosted by a group of bandits and he like tosses their clubs all the way up in the sky to the point that they never come down. He says like they're not going to come down until next winter or something. Then he ends up like meeting this small mushroom man. (laughs) (laughs) who kind of sees that he's like full of himself and wants to teach him a lesson. And basically he gives him a bow and arrow and he says something about like killing a stork. He's supposed to find a feather. Like he has to follow a feather to know where he's supposed to go to fulfill his destiny. But Ivan gets 
tired of waiting to come across this feather that it's going to direct him. And he's got this nice bow and arrow, so he shoots a bird out of the sky for its feather. And that turns off the mushroom guy. <laughs> so he curses him. I'm not even sure we know what the curse is specifically, except we know that he'll be punished for continuing his selfish behavior. Yeah, he says basically that you have to do something selfless in order to lift this curse. But like, I don't even like I'm already losing like the plot of this movie, which like semi doesn't matter. And I mean, I guess I don't really have to sit here and spell out the entire plot for you guys. But long story short, he runs into Nastya by the river and... You know, he's like his obnoxious self to her and she's just trying to do her own thing. She's like putting water on a stump to make flowers grow, which is like something her evil stepmother tells her to go do just to get rid of her and it'll never happen kind of thing. And and I think that Yvonne kind of realizes that and he's a little bit mean to her. And then the mushroom man comes over and says like, all right, now I'm really going to teach you a lesson. And he turns his head into a bear head. And then Yvonne thinks that Nastya did it. And he's like, you're an evil witch. Screw you. And he <laughs> runs around. The rest of this whole thing is Yvonne trying to find himself and reinvent himself as a better upstanding citizen where it eventually leads him to Baba Yaga's house. You know, this is classic Russian witch that shows up in most of these too. And she lives in also this house with chicken legs, which is another like classic fairy tale thing and that's a great scene because you just sort of see all these like tree men happen <laughs> and they like <laughs> grab Yvonne and he has to deal with Baba Yaga and he has to outsmart her but he's kind of a jerk to her too but well she wants to eat him yeah but you know what she's lived long enough she can do that basically he sort of realizes Nastya is his one true love right because he realizes that he was wrong about her and it was actually the mushroom man that turned him into a bear and he learns his lesson and he <laughs> helps an old lady and all this sort of thing. And you haven't even brought up the dog yet. The dog is the crucial part of it. Oh yeah. There's a a lovely dog. (laughs) Yeah. And then the stepmother keeps trying to get her crappy daughter married and Nastya keeps impressing everyone instead. So she has to get rid of Nastya and she like makes Nastya's father drop her off in the woods, which he refuses to do. But Nastya gets off the cart and says, I'll, you know, I, I should die. It's the noble thing. And she's always doing these noble, sad things. And then that's where she finally meets the titular Father Frost. And he takes pity on her because he comes over and he's like, are you warm? And she says, she's clearly like freezing to death. And she's like, yeah, I'm doing fine. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. And he thinks that's wonderful. So he saves her. But he tells her like, don't touch my rod <laughs> don't touch my staff because uh you'll turn into snow and she does it anyhow an evil cat like one of baba yaga's assistants turns into a cat and the cat tricks her into touching the staff and so she freezes and then yvonne finally has to come and help her right mm-hmm. anyhow <laughs> these movies are like exhausting to tell you what's happening in them because it's really just like several series of events that are like just vaguely related but in the end a character learns a lesson and then becomes a better person for it or opens somebody else's eyes or overcomes adversity but the joy of it is just seeing all of these things happen like seeing Yvonne with the bear head is amazing because it's really fake (laughs) (laughs) but in a really fun way in a really great way like I don't know how else they would have done it it's very much like stage makeup you know he's just wearing a fake bear head 
Father Frost when he's sort of walking through the forest. And again, they do this playing the film backwards by they shake all the, the snow off of a tree. But when he comes, all of the snow is like coming back onto a tree. And that's like all he does is like make sure that like trees are full of snow. And then Baba Yaga's house is amazing because it's like this person basically in a giant house suit (laughs) (laughs) with chicken legs. A lot of like gel lighting and things disappearing and reappearing and animals playing a pivotal role. It's great. I loved it. Yeah, it sort of brings it back to the whole origins of cinema thing. Like it feels a lot of these tricks are sort of what... George Melier was doing with his like trip to the moon pre 1900 and these early films and all these just camera tricks reversing the direction of the film or having things suddenly appear. It just all feels like homage to really, really early cinema. And that's part of the charm of it. This was the movie where I actually read the story that it was based on. I read Morosco and it's really just a short little tale about Nastia living with her evil stepmother and the stepmother saying to her father, oh, go get rid of Nastia. Go put her out in the snowy woods and let her die. And so he does. He leaves her out in the woods. And then Father Frost comes by and Nastia says, oh, you come to punish me for all of my evil deeds and thoughts. I'm, I'm such a bad person, which, of course, she isn't. She's a perfect girl. And Father Frost is sympathetic, wants to just freeze her and get on with his business, but it, you know, instead rewards her kindness with these jewels and things. And so, you know, Nastia travels back to her father's house and the stepmother sees this and says, oh, geez, we got to get this great dowry for my actual daughter, you know, the nasty, ugly, mean one. And so she sends her daughter out to sit in the snow for a while in, in the same spot and get these treasures from Father Frost. Because she's so mean and nasty, Father Frost just freezes her, kills her, (laughs) and the father goes out to retrieve her and and her treasures, but comes back with a dead body with a bunch of bones, and that's the story. Love it. So all of these other elements are from other fairy tales. A not-as-dark version of all of that is in this movie, but it's just one little piece of it. It would be great to see where all of these other elements come from. It's funny because I know enough about some of these symbols that, like, I know that cranes are always, like, big, especially in the Ukraine. (laughs) There's, like, all these, like, things that are symbolic of Russia that we see again and again in Russian cinema. But I feel like I'm missing something as somebody who is not Russian and doesn't speak the language. I like the pig sled. I love them all getting married. In the end, there's this really beautiful wedding scene where everyone's wearing these sort of traditional costumes. And one thing I was reading about Roe is that his dialogue was always reflecting something like he would say things in a modern way or he would have characters have these sort of modern nods to things. And none of his costumes are fully traditional. Like they're all sort of semi-updated and stagey. And so like there's this nice flow of the modern with the traditional that shows up in his movies. And it's the best of fantasy in that way because it's even more compelling than what is traditional because it's more colorful or because it's even like bigger or like bolder. And, you know, I love all these silk embroidered sequined, (laughs) you know, outfits are just totally catnip for me. I just, it's so cool. This movie is significant because it's the first one that begins and ends with the storyteller narrator. Oh, yeah. The woman who's standing behind. I mean, it sort of looks like a puppet theater 
and she opens the doors on the puppet theater stage, which just sticks her head out and starts to tell the tale of Father Frost. And this is a connection to the long oral history of how these stories were always told traditionally. There's you know, always a storyteller who would have this rhyming prelude before the story that sort of hints to you what the moral of the story is going to be. And then once the story is over, it comes back at the end and recaps what you're supposed to have learned from this. And we're very clearly put in this proscenium area where we're supposed to enter the world of the story. And you know, so she opens these doors. And then when it's over, she closes the door again. She didn't appear in the first three of these films, but she's in the rest of them. So Roe kind of realized, oh, this is what I should have been doing all along. I should have been putting the storyteller in to connect these films to the way that these stories were always told. So I like that touch a lot. This one also was starring uh, Natalia Sadiq, probably pronouncing her last name wrong, as Nasia, who was a ballet dancer and a figure skater, who, in doing some televised versions of her skating, got noticed by Alexander Rowe. She looks uncomfortably young. <laughs> yeah, and Rowe is clearly enraptured by her beautiful, very childlike face because so often we have huge close-ups of her in this movie and the next one she's in. But she fits the part. Her high-pitched voice is a little much for me. She sounds like an Animal Crossing character. (laughs) (laughs) But she does capture this idea of youthful innocence and perfection perfectly. But she's 20 but looks 12. Yeah, especially with Yvonne who looks older. But in the next movie, she's better paired with a more childish-looking guy. (laughs) Yeah. The next one is actually several years before he ended up making another film, Fire, Water, and Brass Pipes, or Fire, Water, and Trumpets. And this is where all these movies started to kind of blend together for me. I mean, this one has a very clear structure. It's right there in the title. So I kind of remember how this story goes. But, you know, you just get all these elements that are repeated here and there. And it's hard to keep track of which movie which characters are from. But this is the first time we meet the demon Koschai, the endless or the deathless. He's a very popular evil figure in these fairy tales. Never quite got to the West the way that Baba Yaga did. I mean, I always heard stories of Baba Yaga when I was a kid, or sometimes would, but I've never heard of this guy. But he's clearly the main demonic figure in a lot of these Russian fairy tales. He's about to marry Baba Yaga's daughter, and a king sends one of his messengers to send his blessings on the wedding, but can't make it himself because he's sick. So he sends this magical apple that will give youth to Conchai's bride, or to both of them, if they eat the apple. But then Conchai just takes the apple for himself and gets younger. Like, he still looks like an old man, but he's a considerably less decrepit old man and says, no, now that I'm young and strapping, I don't want you anymore. So he cancels the wedding with Baba Yaga's daughter, who's played by Vera Altaskaya, who's another one. She's in every one of these six fairy tales, so she's another face that you just see over and over again in all of these things. Another reason why it's kind of hard to 
remember which movie is which because you see these people over and over. So he sends his werewolves out to find a youthful bride. So they go out and kidnap Alanushka, who has just recently struck up this flirtation with this farm boy. She's a goat herd. She's got this cute little goat that follows her everywhere. And he's just a young farmer. Clearly, they're about to start on some kind of youthful romance. But then she gets kidnapped by the werewolves and taken to Conchai's kingdom and gets imprisoned. And Vasya has to go through these trials to get back to her, which is, you know, are the trials in the title. So there's a castle on fire, and all of these trials are sort of set up by the, these werewolves who are trying to prevent him from getting to Alanushka to get her back. So there's a fire in this castle, and Vasya ends up rescuing the king's daughter, so he wants to reward him with treasures and marry his daughter and all of that, and, and Vasya says, no, I have to get to Alanushka. So then the werewolves put him in a sack and throw him into the ocean to drown him, and so Vasya ends up in another water kingdom where he has to charm the undersea king and uh, teaches him how to read so that he's not bored anymore. And that's the water part of the title. And the trumpets part, or the brass pipes, is Vasya. Actually, this is the most difficult trial for him to overcome because in charming the undersea king, he rescues all of the young maidens who have been sacrificed to the sea to appease the sea king. So all of these young, beautiful girls who've been drowned to appease the sea king, they're freed from his kingdom and are able to get undrowned and all return to their village. And Vasya is celebrated. He is told he's the smartest, bravest, best person in the whole world. So that these are these trumpets that are sort of heralding his greatness. And this is the one where he actually kind of gets trapped. He stays in this kingdom where everybody loves him, and it finally takes Alanushka's goat reminding him about, uh, you know, you're supposed to go free your fiance, Alanushka. And so he shakes off his pride and goes and does what he's supposed to do. It was a fun story, but at this point, I was sort of felt like I'd seen most of the tricks that Raoul had to offer. If this was the first one I'd seen, I probably would have been as charmed by it as I was the Magic Weaver. But after a bunch of these, especially if you're watching them you know, one after another, it's a little repetitive. So this ended up not being one of my favorites, but it's still a lot of fun. Lovely to look at. I love this one. I See, the thing yeah. is, like, I'm with you. They do all run together because they are all sort of, like, a little nonsensical. <laughs> so it gets... <laughs> and then they also come back to the same themes, like these underwater kingdoms and the same types of characters. They're all sort of shot in the same area of russia it looks like it never it's like really like very very everything gets very similar besides the cast kind of carrying over but with each of these i feel like you can see him perfecting things like a little bit better each time so he repeats them but he, they always get better and i feel like this is like here he is fully into his groove like he has all of the right elements in place from everything that we've watched only now he's putting them all together and he keeps adding to it and it works, you know, like it really like the, the pacing in this is really perfected. The story is just over the top enough. You have the, that little white goat who is adorable, bleeding out the names of the main characters like <laughs> over and over and over again. But it's not as annoying as when it's like someone else because it's this adorable little goat. This one's fully charming to me. Like you get Baba Yaga, but not enough that you can't stand her. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, you have that immortal land that he lives in is insane as like the skeleton gate. And there's all these like laughing horse skulls and this like fright wedding of monsters all together, which is like just an awesome opening. Yeah. And Alyushka, she's actually a, a cool character. Instead of just being the like perfect, demure little girl like she actually fights back that's true. you know like she keeps getting proposed to by this creepy immoral guy and he's like you know you're going to be a diamond in my set and she says she like spits on him (laughs) she's like i don't want to be that like screw you you know i'm not interested and she you know she's sitting there waiting to be rescued yeah but she does a little plotting to escape on her own and trick people into letting her out yeah she's got a little agency of her own or at least she attempts to have some even though she can't escape on her own but even when Vasya comes to rescue her a lot of how that happens is through her ingenuity so as far as heroines in these tales go Alanushka is the most admirable yeah and she she has a really quiet confidence to her she's never afraid she's being forced to do things that she doesn't want to do she's being held prisoner She's not happy about it, but she's never, like, cowering. She's always sort of laughing in this guy's face and antagonizing him instead of just sitting there worrying. And when she does worry, it's in private. And so I kind of appreciated that. It was kind of fun. I love the themed fire station. The rooster-themed fire station was amazing, even though the firemen were just, like, really annoying. (laughs) Can you translate the symbol of the rooster for me? It keeps coming back. You see it a lot. Like, the storyteller on the doors of her little puppet theater has roosters, and roosters keep coming up all over the place. I guess it's probably like the cranes. It's important, but... My understanding is that they're a good symbol. It's meant to be like, you know, a a kind of like a hardiness or happiness. But like, that's another thing I I don't really feel comfortable. (laughs) Like, I I don't fully get it. It's definitely a cultural thing. Like the crane and the rooster comes up all the time in these different stories. And hopefully we'll get to other less children-based. There's Ukrainian folk movies that are really interesting, but... I think the rooster is like, my guess would be that because the rooster and the sun are tied for the morning, that that's the fire. Mm -hmm. So that's the symbol, but I'm making that up. (laughs) (laughs) But I love that building and I love these kind of animal themes is just like, to me, it's just design wise, really satisfying and just really fun. The thing I thought was crazy in this one, though, I mean, he perfects this underwater kingdom in this one. You get all these like mollusk men and you get this story about all of these young girls who are whoever the most beautiful girl in the village is gets thrown into the ocean so that the village doesn't get drowned. So it's like this really sadistic, horrible practice. <laughs> but then when they're in this underwater kingdom, which looks exactly like the underwater kingdom from Maria the Weaver, and yet it's like it's the same place, but it's updated and it's just looking better and better each time. This is where it, finally it got kind of malevolent for me is when like they're talking about number one all these drowned women but then number two were like the king who he, by the way gets taught to read from Sherlock Holmes <laughs> which I loved because Sherlock Holmes was like kind of a big deal in Russia <laughs> but then like when Vasya is to go again he's like all right I gotta I gotta get out of here the king is like oh you know won't you please drown yourself later in life so that we can come play again and we can have, we had such a good time you know and I'm like this is such a bizarre thing to teach children 
<laughs> that like if you drown you end up in a really like cool underwater kingdom where like you're not dead you might be bored worst case scenario you know you'll maybe be surrounded by like several beautiful ladies who sing for you and you'll have like a cool fish king friend go on kids drown yourself didn't seem like a good lesson to teach children Except if you don't have a brave hero like Vasya to come save you, you've entered that watery kingdom slash grave for eternity. But it's like fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's like not scary. I don't know. Yeah. Don't drown yourself, children. But yeah, I don't know. This one I thought was really, it was like, it was taking all of the elements I liked the most out of all the previous movies and just tweaking them enough, which I think even in the last movie, which we're going to mention, even though it, I think it's technically 1970, but it was enough of a 1960 production that we figured, screw it, let's just talk about it. Well, all of these movies have the date at the beginning. The first thing you see is the production year. And this says 1969, so I think it counts. But then at the same time, maybe we shouldn't count The Magic Weaver because that says 1959 when it comes up, but it definitely wasn't in theaters until 1960. So We're cheating ourselves. If we aren't too specific about whether we're talking about production year or theatrical year, all of these movies are, are 60s movies. Yeah. And then you see how all of these are repetitious, but they're being tweaked in a really good way. And this one to me was really fun. It was notable. And it has a really adorable goat. Love that baby goat. Wait, there's a goat in this one too? I'm still talking about fire water. Oh. <laughs> uh, I will say it. So at the end of uh, 1968, Roe actually won the People's Artist of the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic Award for Outstanding Achievements in the Arts. So these were definitely popular and well-known and beloved films. He was playing directly to his audience. This stuff was working. And also, I think the lead of this movie, who appears again in the next one, Alexei Katyshev, <laughs> he apparently was working in the studio as an assistant sound engineer, is what I read. And then Ro, like, noticed him and said, like, you look like you belong in a fairy tale and, like, just cast him. <laughs> he's right. He does have that look. Yeah, I agree. It's He's perfect. Those big eyes. Yeah, this sort of like impish smile. Mm -hmm. He is perfect. And so I guess to round it out, as we mentioned, Barbara the Fair with the silken hair. one of his most well-known movies at least this is the movie that made me want to watch all of his movies just seeing stills from these but this one again starts out with an old lady in a window telling us to gather around and it's basically that there's this king who is like figuring out everything that he has in his kingdom <laughs> taking inventory humans and objects yeah and he sort of like takes a drink of water and then this water king Chudo Yudo demands a ransom or else he's going to drown him. And he says, like, the thing that you don't know about is going to be the ransom and lets him go. And so the czar is not sure what that is until he gets home and he realizes that in his absence, his wife had given birth to an heir. So he realizes that the thing is going to end up being his son that he's going to have to give. Then I think he sends his 
doers or whatever. I don't know. He sends his servants to go swap out his son with another baby so that it doesn't matter when the time comes and he knows that his heir will be safe. But they can't do it at the end of the day because it's like, it's a woman and she can't do it. So it it ends up that he ends up with his own son anyhow and doesn't realize. And then so sort of fast forward to the future where you have back in Chudo Yudo's underwater kingdom, his own daughter, Barbara, he wants to marry off and he's trying to find a good suitor for her, which is mostly like old weirdo freaks that he keeps... bringing in that I couldn't tell actually like one of them is like an old Arab guy with like dead goldfish floating around in his chest that I think were meant to be alive but they look like they're dead which was kind of a good costume but also messed up because they definitely (laughs) killed some fish for that another one's like a magician that can read people's minds and I kind of suspect that he was an anti-semitic trope but I can't say for sure and then there's like this French mallard it's like a duck man who tap dances and Barbara's not into any of these guys. And in fact, the, what she wants is she wants like a strapping young farmer because she has this caretaker who's an old woman who says, have you ever been in love? And she tells this story about how she used to have a lover. And then when they found out that the two of them were dating and it was like, you know, he was perfect. And he'd say, what, what's his, I didn't even write down his line, but he says something like, what can I do for you, my beautiful dove, or something like that, which Barbara thinks is just like the epitome of romance. And so this woman's saying, she's like weeping as she tells this tale, because basically like when the families find out that the two of them are courting, they send the boy to war, and then they lock this woman away. And of course, he dies at war, and then she ends up drowning herself from grief. And that's why she's down there with Barbara. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, Barbara only hears this and thinks, wow, like that sounds so romantic. I I would love to do that. (laughs) So she's sort of holding out for this. And so once her father realizes that, he says, well, you know what? I'm owed a human boy. (laughs) So let me go collect on that. And he goes up to the surface again and starts to haunt, which is a great, it's a really good sequence because it's basically like, Anytime there's anything that's filled with water, this hand comes out and points to the king and says, like, you know, your time has come. I'm here to collect. And so he goes ahead and throws his son into the water and drowns him, thinking that it's not really his son because he spends all this time with the local fisherman boy who he thinks is his son, who is, you know, of course, the main character, Andre, right? Mm-hmm. Alexei Katyachev from the last movie. And Andre is, of course, like an upstanding proletariat who has a nice face. And um, <laughs> and his son, of course, is like this. It's like your sort of typical. Well, they're both named Andre, right? The czar's son and this boy. And the son is this like totally spoiled, overweight. You know, it's this sort of cartoonish version of a rich, spoiled child. And he's constantly shoving his face with like food and candy and all these women come around and they sing for him whenever he eats, which is kind of perfect. Plus he's chubby and he's got curly red hair and looks exactly like the king. So it should be obvious to everybody that that's actually <laughs> his real son. Whereas the, you know, the fisherman's son, Andre, looks nothing like him, blonde, tall. So it's a good little visual gag there. We all know whose son is who, but the king doesn't seem to. 
Yeah, and it's sort of great because when you get drowned, the first person you meet is like this lady sprite of a tree stump who comes and helps you. And she's like, here, give this carrot to the magical beast that will carry you to then get on the ferry. And you give them this honey to take you across the ferry. And the magical beast is this like donkey. And the ferry is being driven by two baby bears. And of course, the czar's son, Andre, just eats the carrot and he eats all the honey. And everyone's like, wow, you're rude AF. (laughs) And he does not endear himself to anyone. And the sprite's pissed off at him. And she's like, wow, you didn't even say thanks and all of this. And so he runs up and says, I'm going to, here I am. Like, I've been told I'm here to marry your daughter. And to Chudo Yudo, he's like, yeah, whatever, great, fine. And then Barbara sort of realizes that I don't want to marry this guy. He sucks. (laughs) (laughs) But like, it's a little too late until the king goes and confesses to fisherman Andre what the situation is and when Andre being the upright citizen that he is realizes what happened he says well then obviously you never should have drowned the other boy it's my place to do this and if this is my burden then then I'll take it and he drowns himself he goes through the same trials of course being nice or giving you know saying thank you and giving the carrot and giving the honey and everyone loves him and he's a good guy and all of this kind of like comes up to the end with Barbara realizing like, well, I need to do my own little trick because I don't want to be forced to marry this guy. So she says, I'm going to split into six different people, which means that she's splitting into six different doves, but they all have human faces. And the way that they do this, and I love it so much, is that they stick little masks on top of all of these doves who I'm sure are just like have absolutely no idea what's happening. And they're also seem like they probably tie them onto a tree so that they don't fly away. Sometimes they're fake doves, like from behind, but sometimes they're definitely real doves with masks on their faces, and it's the funniest, saddest. And it's super creepy looking. (laughs) So creepy and amazing, and I love it. But probably animal torture. So then, you know, Barbara says, only my true love could know the real dove. And of course, the fake Andre gets it all wrong, and then the real Andre comes charging in, and love happens. So even this plot, like you can already see like every single element again from all of these movies of the 60s. And I thought that this was such a rewarding film to watch, having watched all of these other ones, even though I'm with you, like these are all fun, but I wouldn't watch them all in a row again. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't mind revisiting any one of them as a one off, but to watch them all in a row, it was a little bit rough. But to then end with Barbara the Fair coming into 1970 it was really cool because again, you just see all of these different elements that have been used over and over and are continually being tweaked and perfected. And this one really feels like it's just shot really cinematically again. Like the pacing is even tighter. Like there really isn't much that's wasted here. It's definitely the best underwater King makeup played by Georgi Miliar, who's in every one of these. He's Baba Yaga in the last two movies, and he was Croak in the first movie. And in this one, the Sea King has got these big fuzzy ears, and he's all painted blue. But there's always enough of Georgi's face revealed that he's instantly recognizable. You know that yeah, he was like the devil in the Christmas one, where and he's got this like weird nose, and he's all furry. But it's always obvious it's this Georgi guy playing these twisted creatures. And so that's fun, too. But they finally got the makeup right for this Sea King. The makeup is good. You get the Sea King. You get dance numbers. You get that upright proletariat hero. 
Barbara, you know, she's kind of, she just wants to be loved, right? Like she wants this ideal human love that she finds so romantic, which is, you know, there's been better female characters, but she's self-possessed. She doesn't. She's a little selfish. Yeah, she, but she's selfish, but she stands up for herself. She doesn't let herself get steamrolled the way that, uh, what's her face and Father Frost does. Nastia. Nastia. I don't know. I like this one. I definitely found the suitors pretty tedious. I don't know this for a fact, but it really seems like they gathered a bunch of Soviet comedians and just put them on the stage to perform in front of Barbara and the King and said, okay, do your thing. And then that was whatever this comedian shtick is, is what the suitor did for Barbara. And they're all clowns and their routines go on for too long and aren't funny. But it seems like that may have been a taste of bringing the modern into these fairy tales, like you were saying. These all kind of seem sort of like more modern comedy routines not funny at all but modern so as tedious as those got it was a nice touch oh and plus it has a chicken themed palace (laughs) amazing rooster themed and then they have a rooster themed palace cake at the end of this movie which is just as amazing that the fat air dives right into shoves the whole thing in his face he kind of looked like donald trump to me (laughs) well i might be projecting but he Kind of, look, kind of look like Donald Trump. I don't know. In the end, like the good son gets the whole kingdom, but I'm not, I don't fully understand why, other than being a good boy. No, he doesn't. He gets Barbara and they walk off down the narrow paths that her nanny had talked about. And I'm not even sure you get a whole lot of closure. The actual son of the king is the one who's getting fat in the palace, getting ready to become the eventual dumb king. <laughs> and I feel like Barbara, who's You know, she's got powers. Like, it's really cool when she weaves a carpet on the wall. There's a really great stop-motion effect where where she creates a a tapestry. And and she, you know, she's got all sorts of magical powers, and she gives them all up just to walk down these narrow paths with her beloved, like she's been dreaming of, and get away from the boring undersea kingdom. Like, I think that's it. I think they just lead the lives of normal commoners. Our two attractive leads... Whereas the ugly people are stuck in the kingdom having to rule and not do a very good job. That was the good thing about watching all of these in a row, was just watching how all of the plot elements were carried over from one to another and just watching him perfect his technique. It's so clear, like, from one movie to the next. Obviously, these movies were hugely popular, and so more and more money could get invested in them. So they become tighter and more fantastical with, well, maybe not tighter, but... He's got a vision. I don't know if he's got an art director that he's always working with, but all of these movies have a really distinct look to them. And like you were saying in the first one, Maria the Magic Weaver, it's trying to get there, but it can't quite get there. It doesn't have the money. It doesn't have the, you know, maybe the vision wasn't quite in place. But by the end, by Barbara, like this is a very distinct fairy tale vision that is clearly Rose, like, this is a rove fairy tale that's being presented to you. So you have to consider him an auteur. He definitely has a way of looking at things, a way of looking at fairy tales, and he gets that on the screen in a really distinctive way. It's fun to watch. It really is. And then, I mean, after Barbara the Fair, he only had one other film, Golden Horns, came out in 1972, but he died in 73. I can't find out why... But I guess he was in his late 60s. It's, I guess, like, I guess you can die. It seems young to me. So 
I'm not totally sure how he died, but I just think this stuff is just so cool. I love any movie, whether it's for children or not, is that has these sort of beautifully painted sets and, you know, uses your own imagination to propel the story along. I just think that that's such an underrated way to tell stories. Like I get so sick of these CGI movies or, or modern films that do not let anything get left to your imagination. Like it has to over explain to you how this could possibly be happening and how everything works in a certain like UI UX engineered world. It's just exhausting. And it's like, I'd much rather just be like, uh, it's the forest and the trees talking like, you know, mm -hmm. I don't need like, uh, and if it's a guy in a suit that looks like a tree or if it's even just like, you know, a bunch of rubber trees and somebody whispering over it, like, great. Love it. Love that. It works just as well, if not better half the time. So that's my rant about that, but I just found these so engaging to watch. They're just so visually stunning. I really found the cultural specificity of these to be the most appealing thing. The fact that I didn't know anything about this stuff going in, and by the end of watching all of these, I see things repeated, and I get what's important, and I have a feeling for what this stuff is all about, but there's still so much I don't understand. That's what's so appealing about these. It's you're just kind of thrown into these worlds and you know, you get lost in them and there's so much as Americans we can't possibly understand. And that's really what's sort of wonderful about them. And like I was saying about anime, it's the same thing. It's these fantasies that are so specific to a culture. I mean, you can get a sense of where they come from and what a lot of the stuff means to the, you know, intended audience. But it's also just this, like, this will never totally make sense to me, feel of them that also really adds to the appeal. I mean, in a weird way, we're sort of, as foreigners watching this, kind of getting the child experience of watching these. Because I think, the you know, if you're a kid coming into this, chances are you also have not, even if you've seen symbols, like... Uh, you know, or heard tales that were similar, you haven't really thought too hard about them. <laughs> so now you sort of do leave this being like, ah, oh, yes, roosters, this is a symbol of, you know, Soviet, whatever, you know, and you're kind of figuring it out on your own. So it's like, it, it is kind of like, in a in a way that maybe sometimes the, the best way to, to come into cultures, if you can find it, it, are fairy tales. It's like a great, a great introduction to things. Because you know, either you're going to get explained exactly what it's about, or you're just going to be tossed into it and have to make sense of it. And uh, it's just as fun. It is interesting how little English language scholarship there is for these things. I mean, it's really easy to see all these films. Go on YouTube and you can see any one of these things. It's like readily available. The subtitles are good. They're all well translated. But I think there's this idea that we're showing them in America for Russian immigrants or people who come from Russian backgrounds and they understand about this stuff and, and they're the only ones who are going to watch it. But, you know, it, it's for them. We don't have to study it. You know, no one else is going to care about this stuff. So why should we devote any scholarship to it? This is just for people with Russian backgrounds and they love this stuff. Somebody has to be doing this. It's just I don't think it's in English or at least it's not readily available in English. Well, I'm sure there is in Russian, but nobody thinks it's worth translating. Well, do it for me, the person that's listening to this and is disappointed at how little we know about these movies <laughs> that we just <laughs> went on about. I would love to know 
a lot more. If somebody wants to tweet at us and just be like, hey, idiots, here's all the answers to your questions. I'd love that. Yeah, please do. Which, you know, by the way, you should follow us on Twitter (laughs) (laughs) at Cinema60 Podcast on Twitter. Anyhow, that was it. That was Alexander Rowe. I guess I'll go drown myself. (laughs) Thanks for that one, Jenna. These odd little paths you take us down. I usually throw a fit by the end of having to watch them all, but this was a good one. Finally. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.